0: Or
1: what's going on
0: yeah we're we got a podcast video games are out and movies are in Mm. that's that's what we're doing we're doing a mega well not really mega decade podcast because we're only four years into the decade but i thought we'd get a bunch of people together and we discuss our our personal top five favorite movies of the decade so far, so that includes 2020, 2021, 2022, 2023, and part of 2024. And I got two lovely guests today, and I'll I'll let them introduce themselves. I'll let uh, Taylor, you may go first.
2: Hi, I'm uh, I'm Taylor. I do community community management uh, for YouTube personality Jacob Geller. I'm um, help run a yearly stream. that sort of stuff I'm really into movies that's uh all you need to know about me
0: I'm a big fan of Jacob Geller but I'm also a big fan of you tales Taylor so I'm so happy that you're on the podcast and then we have Nick Nick Grasso on as well so I will let you introduce yourself Nick
3: Yes, hi everyone. I'm Nicolo Grasso. You can call me Nick. Um, I'm an Italian independent filmmaker, also podcaster, film critic. You know, I, I, I live in brief cinema. Is what's it like for Kojima? Like seventy percent movies. I'm around that wavelength. You know. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. That's awesome. I'm like seventy percent movies, twenty percent video games, 9 percent television and then one percent literature it's terrible i need to get back oh wow i used to be LSG. much higher on literature but these days uh i just am not but and then there's of course aaron my co-host we're yeah. just like two guys with a podcast right
1: yeah i think i'm like 10 percent movies right now uh 20 years ago i was definitely like 99 percent movies but lately i'm more time for it i, I love the movies but uh Definitely gonna have the most basic list here. So, spoiler alert.
0: I, I don't. I, I I think your list is gonna be great, Aaron. It's gonna be awesome. But we have. Uh, we're all gonna share our personal top five movies of the decade so far, ranked. So hopefully that comes up to twenty great movies that you can watch. Though there might be some crossover. We will see. We will see if that happens.
1: Yeah. So. Okay, so we're going to do this, like, round-robin style where we go uh, clockwise. And I know that the clock is the same for everybody. Uh, Oren's at uh, 2 o'clock, Taylor's at 5 o'clock, Nick's at uh, 8 o'clock, and I'm at, like, 11 o'clock. I, I know this, these... Looks about right. <laughs> is that about right? I'm at 1 o'clock,
0: so, but close. 2 o'clock,
1: You're, 2 o'clock. 2 o'clock. Uh.
0: One (laughs) o'clock. I'm at
1: 11 a.m. Oh shit! Uh, It's over. Um, But I think it may be worth doing the uh, the same thing we did with Game of the Year, which was the uh, the save. Do we want to do the save? If if somebody, if I say, "Oh, my number five movie is Crimes of the Future," and Oren's like, "But that's my (laughs) number," whatever higher, uh, you could say save. Uh, and then we could talk about it so that you aren't robbed of your, do, do you, do you like that? Yeah, we could, we could do that. What do you, what do you all think? Yeah, sure. close for me. yeah, there, there, there may be no crossover, so there may be, there may be no reason to save, but just in case we do save, uh, that's, that's how it's going to go. All right. So should we get started?
0: Yeah, let's just go yeah. get right into it.
1: All right, I I guess uh, I'll go first. Actually, I guess we're going uh, we're not going clockwise, but <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at the sheet. Uh, okay, okay. This is I I kind of agonized over this pick, um, and and it yeah I, my number five is is Oppenheimer, which is 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 like the most oh. basic ass movie you could pick. But um, I've watched a lot of movies in the last few days. And I think I came into Oppenheimer with particularly low expectations because a lot of people were like, it's good. It's just like a blockbuster, which which I think is, is true. Um, but I don't know. I dug it with, with like one minor caveat. Uh, I think Christopher Nolan wants to be a smart guy making smart movies that are these like interesting thought experiments. But like, he's not smart enough and his movies aren't smart enough for the most part. Which which <laughs> uh, like I, I kind of... Uh, Inception, I really like fell off of the Christopher Nolan hype trend and haven't really got back on. And and I I really don't like um, Interstellar at all. Like I kind of that's one, probably one of my least favorite movies of the last 20 years. Uh, but I dug Oppenheimer because I think when Christopher Nolan is channeling his inner Steven Spielberg, he makes good Hollywood films. And I think that this is a good Hollywood film. So that's where I'm at.
0: I dug Oppenheimer as well. It was not on my list, but uh, it has some it has some interesting choices in it. I think like when it gets like more expressive and even like surreal especially like that one scene when he's giving the speech after like the bomb was dropped or whatever mm. to all of like the crazy fanatical Americans who are like yeah
4: like
0: I, I think that that scene alone was more interesting than what I expect from Christopher Nolan so that like kind of that kind of those kind of choices made the movie for me and I also loved the uh the the Harry S Truman scene with Gary Oldman oh yeah like that was such like a cynical view of american politics politicians in a way that i appreciated in the mega blockbuster so i liked all that stuff
3: i, I thought it was i think it's a good pick yeah i agree i agree it was one of my it might actually be my favorite christopher nolan movie after like a few watches it's something i need, I need to you know it needs to marinate a bit more needs to let it be before solidifying it but it's definitely up there um especially considering how how seldom we get movies like this nowadays. There's just three hours of people talking and it manages to make it feel like a thriller and it's all like A-list stars. It's very unusual for the <laughs> for the current climate of Hollywood cinema. So, no, it's, it's, it's not on my list as well, but it's, you know, honorable mention for sure. It's something I've thought about for a long time.
1: Yeah. Awesome. Right. Well, Oppenheimer, my number five. Uh... Nick, are are you ready? I am. You're, you're, you're number five.
3: <laughs> it was so hard to pick. Uh, yeah. in, in a weird way, like number fifth spot is the hardest one to choose from because it could be anything. The other ones are a bit, you know, more more locked in. It's just a matter of ranking. But for number five, I ended up picking Bones and all. But look at what you know.
0: great choice. For this Did entire not make list. Didn't my list, but I love it. Ah. Yeah.
4: Yeah.
3: I was thinking, like, what are movies that I've seen multiple times? and that I've thought about for like the past three, four years. And and Bones and All I saw twice in the cinema, which very rarely happens for me to go back to the movies just to re-experience something on the big screen. Um, And it's outstanding. It It manages to create this story of cannibalism that's full of love and longing. It's a great metaphor, I think, for for uh, LGBTQ communities, especially being set in the eighties. I think it's very great, even at portraying, you know, like the 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 strong wave of emotions that come from first love, from experiencing it. Um, it's it's very creepy and also very tender. It's the type of movie that I love. Mm. Uh, where he manages to create something so tactile, so lived in. it's It looks and feels like a movie from the 80s in all the best ways. So definitely Bones and Doll, Luca Wollegina, one of my favorite films of the 2020s.
0: That was uh, in contention for me. It didn't make my top five, at least the one that I made for this podcast, but it could have. Uh, I think uh, one thing I'll add to that is I just thought I thought the cinematography was so like lush and just so like, I got so sucked into it. Like it had like a sensuality to it that I don't really see in a lot of movies. Um, And I'm not a big Timothy Chalamet fan, but I think he was pretty perfectly cast in that movie. And Mm -hmm. I thought his, that's probably my favorite performance of his was bones and all. So uh, I, I agree. I think it's a great movie. It made me cry the first time I saw it. Um, And I, I always say I don't cry that much in movies. That's kind of like a lie because I feel like I average <laughs> like two or three cries a year. And that was that for that year. I, I yeah, waterfalls, <laughs>
3: same. Same. Oh, it's 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 a perfect ending. I, had a, I, I was writing a script for a for a film about cannibals that had pretty much the same ending and so when I watched the movie. I was very upset but also happy. I was like, oh, it's you know, it's what I wrote. <laughs> so it, it it works, you know, seeing <laughs> on the big screen. And now I have to I'm reworking it over the past year, I've been working on it. But no, it's amazing.
2: Yeah. I adore uh, Mark Rylance's uh, performance in that film. Yes. It's so simultaneously yeah. tender and. Uh, like cartoonish and terrifying, and can like snap between the three modes at the drop of a pen. Um, one of my favorite like character performances of the decade so far, without question.
3: They're underrated, yeah.
0: Yeah, that movie has like a lot of best of things for me because like it's my favorite Mark Rylance performance, it's my favorite Timothy Chalamet performance, it's probably my favorite Luca movie as well. So it's got a lot going for it. I'm starting to wonder if I should have picked it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah. all right uh taylor you want
2: to go next yeah sure um my number five is uh sorry if i botched this name uh salome Joshi's uh taming the garden um, um you know uh werner herzog talks all about like uh The justification of a film by way of creating a cinematic image, an image that just, you know, sticks with you and and stays with you forever, even if you forget the context. And what this movie is about, it's about this former Georgian prime minister who he's collecting all of these hundred year old plus trees from within the country. And he is paying to have them transported across the country by land and by sea to get to his private residence and be replanted. And you're following this tree as it is uprooted, um, very, um, with this like absurdity. It, 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 they basically like pick up this tree, put it on a little tank, drive it all across the country. They kind of destroy communities by doing this. Like trees are not meant to be moved. Not like that, not these huge, massive trees. Um, they destroy other plant life. they they widen streets, they take, um, you know, uh, they they kind of alter people's uh homes and, and in order to move this tree down a road, eventually culminating in the transportation of a singular tree on a barge in this supremely surreal image of a tree in the middle of the sea. Um, it's an image I will never forget. It's a film I think about all the time. There's almost no words. Um, it's all carried by um, the absurdity of this action, the visuals, um, and its editing. Um, it's, it's just an incredible, incredible film. And if you have a lot of patience, it's a very slow, slow film. Um, it's well worth a shot. I, I don't think enough people check this one out. It sounds
4: yeah, right I'm looking
0: up my it up alley right
2: now. Yeah, that sounds great.
0: Oh, this looks really good, actually.
3: I wonder why okay, it wasn't yeah, more talked about. That's interesting. It's like, like it one it of those films where it makes
2: sense. Um, it had limited distribution, as you said, mm. and it's just like it's it's such an incredibly niche thing. Like there, there is it's what it says on the tin and you're watching that for like two hours. Um, and so, um, just, you know, all a matter of patience, but I found <laughs> it so resonant. I
0: gotta check this out. Yeah. This is awesome.
2: All right. Oren, uh, you want to give your, uh, number five. Okay.
0: I was like reluctant to say anything. Cause I'm like, uh, am I sure about this pick? Uh, for context, like, my top five, I'm really confident about my top three, but four and five could be, like, any ten movies. <laughs> but um, I think for number five, I'm going to go with Pig by Michael Sarnoski. Uh, nice. With, with Nicolas Cage. Yeah, I'm going to go with this one. And the the reason why I'm going with it is because, well, first of all, it's like, it's a film about... Um, Nicolas Cage, he's like this mysterious guy who lives with his truffle pig in um in a forest, and it's like kind of like a John Wick style storyline where his pig gets stolen and he's trying to get his pig back. And you start to like discover things about his past as he's looking for this pig. It's it's only ninety minutes long, but Um, There's so much in the movie that I thought was just so amazing. And I was, again, really emotional by the end of it. And I think the reason why I was so emotional is because it's a movie that's kind of about like the mystery of past trauma and like the mystery of the past and the mystery of depression. Like, and I think that's like, they're like, there's like a certain power to it. Like, you know, that this is somebody who used to have a life and used to have success but like something happened in his life that caused him to be to, to basically retreat retreat from society completely and retreat from all the relationships in his life and I just thought all of that stuff was so compelling I just uh, because um, I, I think that kind of subject matter doesn't really get uh, depicted in a lot of movies like this kind of like urge to retreat from your entire life and uh, the sadness of that and On top of that, Pig is also low-key, a really great John Wick-style movie. And I say that in the sense that in the John Wick movies, there's this whole criminal underworld that, you know, kind of is on the periphery of the storyline of John Wick. With Pig, there's, like, this whole underworld of chefs (laughs) that's, like, explored, and it's so absurd and bizarre, but it totally worked for me. So it's, like, a really funny movie, but it's also a really sad movie and um i just thought it was beautiful it's like it's such a great movie about grief and loss and trauma and i i, I really
3: connected to it probably the best performance by nicolas cage in i, I love the guy to be honest like I, I i watched all of his direct-to-video movies but i don't know maybe the best since lord of war <laughs> kick ass like in I, over I a decade. Say, uh best since bad
0: lieutenant port of call new orleans though yeah (laughs) i love that movie yeah Mm -hmm.
1: all right fives are locked down you can't change it now or it's over (laughs) uh my number four was uh i don't know like I, i i do feel most strongly probably about the top three of my list than than but uh, but I did really really like this movie, the the Banshees of Inishirin
0: Oh yeah, a good one. Didn't make my list, but I love it.
4: Mm.
1: Um, I I did not know anything about the Irish Civil War prior to watching it. I didn't would never even have been able. I never even knew there was an Irish Civil War. Um, I just found the whole thing very compelling, both as like a metaphor and even as like a straight story. Uh, Colin Farrell's performance was uh was was really 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 powerful uh i don't remember what the guy's name is gleason uh dom hall gleason's dad brendan gleason. Gleason. Yeah. gleason uh yes uh also terrific performance um i thought the setting was was unique and kind of eerily magical sort of like place in in transition um i don't know i, I, I it 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 really worked for me
0: yeah, I, that's that's another good, like, feel-bad movie, you know? <laughs> I just, uh, uh, here's the thing. The Coen brothers haven't made a movie together since Ballad of Buster Scruggs. So I'm like, where are my Coen brothers' movies? And I feel like Banshees of Inna Sharon filled that void a little bit, like this kind of feel-bad, totally. nihilistic comedy that's really funny and really sad, but, it, but it's very symbolic and gets you thinking about a lot of things, um... So, yeah, I I loved it.
2: It has such a bombastic script from McDonough, and it just makes everything inherently watchable, even as it's punching you in the gut at every available opportunity. And it just lends itself so well to um, these large performances that are wholly unignorable.
3: Absolutely. Even just the whole angle that I always find very interesting. How much do you have to sacrifice to create like great art and greatness? Um, it's something that I noticed. I had a whole argument with a friend of mine who didn't like the movie because of that. Because it was like, it doesn't make sense. Why can't he just like make good art and also <laughs> have a friend? I was like, it's, it's not that easy. <laughs> but it's hard to explain. Yeah. If, you haven't, if you've never experienced it, it's hard to explain. Um, and this movie just captures that so well. And I also like how it ends. It's not. It doesn't take the easy route. Could have easily been a more, a more um, comfortable ending, a happier ending, or even just a bleaker ending. Instead, it's just. writes it this fine line of just being perfectly bittersweet. I don't know. Uh, it, it's definitely stuck with me. I love McDonagh. Uh, in Bruges is one of my favorite movies, like changed the way I looked at films back in like 2011, <laughs> 2012. <laughs> it was a watershed moment. And to see him kind of evolve with the times um, for something more mature. Yeah, it's, it's great. Probably one of the best scripts of the past few years. I agree with Tales.
0: Yeah, those are probably my favorite. two favorite McDonough movies are Imbruge and Banshees, and it was great seeing them like all reunite for another collaboration.
1: <laughs> Alright, Nick.
3: My number four is another movie that I've seen multiple times in the cinema, and it's just... I think it's the perfect movie for this director. The Card Counter by Paul Schrader. Nice. It's... Uh, it, this film, it's a vibe. I know it's something that's overused, where it's just like, oh, the film, like, you get lost in the vibes. I was like, for Card Counter, this is perfect for me. There's just something about the soundtrack, the voiceover, the performances, the story of of uh, a, a war veteran who was accused of war crimes and torture in, uh, in Abu Ghraib, was it? Um, mm-hmm. And then he, he leaves jail and starts become it becomes a card counter a gambler it makes a lot of money off of it and he just travels the usa picks up a kid who's very on the loose uh, with a vendetta against willem dafoe's character who's also part of the whole uh, terrorist (laughs) atrocious war crimes that they committed in the east and so it's it's it has everything you want from a Paul Schrader movie. It feels like an encapsulation of his entire filmography. He has made this whole like trilogy of Lonely Man with First Reformed and lastly The Master Gardener, which I do like, but it don't hit the highs of Card Counter. There's just something about maybe Oscar Isaac's performance, um, the way the film is shot, which is just like incredibly stylish and rich, high-contrast uh, cinematography. And also this just purely digital. there's something so beautiful about it when so many other movies are trying to go the film route actually shooting a film or emulating film, having almost eighty year old Paul Schrader <laughs> just being like my film is gonna look fake in some parts or just gonna have like the weirdest c g i and you just go with it, you go with the flow um it's it's great. I was not expecting it like I was looking at the list, and I didn't think I would put it here in the top five. But the more I thought about it, I was like, this just fits. Um, It's probably... It's not the best, necessarily, that he has ever made, but it's probably my favorite. There's just something about it that I connect to on just a visceral level. So, yeah, number four, card counter.
2: I think it's so interesting how that... You know, Paul Schrader has this uh, fixation on echoing Brisson, um, Mm -hmm. who's a filmmaker who's so fixated on hands... And and like mechanical movements, whereas uh, Schrader, he's so uh, fixated on interiority and enclosed spaces and no more is a space more enclosed in one of his films than the card counter where it is this guy going from these casinos, which are actively timeless and meant to confuse and cut you off from the world and keep you there as long as possible. And, you know, contrasting this with um, prison and, and Uh, his time in Abu Ghraib and I think it's just like incredibly it has it has a atmosphere just I haven't seen in another movie because of that
4: yeah
3: and also an incredible final shot like that he doesn't Uh, fake out so many other filmmakers would just be like a a freeze frame of the hands coming together and he just like had the actors going for like five minutes six minutes that's oh yeah that's it's beautiful beautiful
2: Ending with uh, the pickpocket shot, yeah, uh, exactly. but drawn with out, out as far as possible.
3: Surprisingly optimistic. I think that's yes. the thing that I like the most about it. When he had made so many other movies that are just, just tower and they end in in madness, violence, chaos. Even something like Light Sleeper, which is a bit more positive, but
2: the fact that I this mean, like, has
3: such an ending, it's like, it's oh, <laughs> a salty <softie> after all. <laughs> There's still redemption. It's always possible to be redeemed.
2: Yeah, I mean, like given he, like, co-wrote Mishima with his brother, like, cannot get more nihilistic than that. Yeah. It's, like, pretty refreshing to see him come to this as he gets older, even if uh, (laughs) other aspects of him uh, uh, get a bit entrenched with that age.
3: Yeah.
0: It's so wild that he, uh, usually with directors, they'll be, like, really inspired by another director and they kind of, like, use that as, like, a bit the basis for their art in a lot of ways, like Brian De Palma with Alfred Hitchcock. And I think with Paul Schrader, it's so funny that he just like saw the movie pickpocket and it's like, this is who I am. I'm just going to take from this movie pickpocket, but <laughs> it's, it's so, it's so good. Yeah. Like card counter is such a vibe. Oscar Isaac. I really wish he would just stop making franchise movies. Cause he's so good when he works with like Paul Schrader or the Coen brothers. So, um, Hopefully, hopefully, he comes back more often to that realm. <laughs> yeah.
2: All right, Taylor, you're on. You're on deck. All right. Um. So my pick for number four is a pitch pong where Seth Memorial memoria, starring Tilda Swinton. Um, Still
0: haven't seen it understand <laughs> no. it's you know
2: it was kind of hard to see and then like the blu-rays were landed and, uh, a whole a whole pain in the ass to see that movie so for any, <laughs> anyone who doesn't know this movie uh the american release of it would go city to city only show like three times and you'd have to just really pay attention to even catch this thing i ended up catching it twice i thought it was so amazing i'm a huge a pitch pong ethical fan uh one of my favorite directors ever uh, one of my favorite living directors along with Simon Long um who you know they inform each other uh and it's about this woman who is haunted by a sound um the film begins and she um hears this boom and uh she wants to bring it into reality so she does everything she can um to do that um starting with going to a um sound designer and having him almost perfectly recreate that it's very ambient um as with all of where's ethical's films and it goes to much more uh, alien places um than almost anything else he's done um it's one of those films that you just have to see to understand what it is doing um but i i have rarely been so impressed by sound design um by just residing in a moment Um, it is a truly hypnotizing film. Um, it is not a film with large performances, but the performances there are just so perfect for what it is doing. And one of my favorite things is when, um, a director, uh, makes a film in a language that is not their first language. And, and, you know, this, this film, I believe is in Colombia. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, he absolutely nails it. It was just absolute joy to see in theater uh, twice. So, that's my number four.
3: Yeah, that, that that's not something... I mean, you can watch it at home, <laughs> but it's not the same, ex- more so than other movies. There are so many movies, like the ones that I mentioned as well, like you can easily watch them at home and get pretty much the same enjoyment. But Memoria is, like you said, you have to be locked in for that. <laughs> here to be no outside room. noises
2: you need to, such an immersive soundscape
3: yeah no it's it's outstanding it's pro- yeah <laughs> I've, just the ending just thinking about the ending without spoiling it oh my it. Gosh, it's, yeah it's you know he went there he went there and had he Did off. indeed man I, I i don't know if he's working on anything new nowadays um but i hope he is i hope he keeps making like four or five movies a decade because is is amazing <laughs> absolutely
2: joe <laughs> you know uh tar had that big reference to it uh to uh his film blue so like yeah. m- more and more mainstream directors are referencing him pretty neat to see yeah. that's cool uh
0: gosh yeah i gotta watch that one uh right. darn it uh, yeah boy, like that's
2: like the- oh what's up Oh, never and I'm right. Uh, continue what you're
0: saying. Oh, sorry, sorry. I was just, I was just like, yeah. Like, I think it averages like one or two viewings in Chicago a year, so I just have to like find a way mm-hmm. to watch it. Yeah, it's
3: um, cool, actually.
0: Yeah, it's. I think they showed it like last year at a time when I like could not see it, and I was so annoyed. So I have to do it. But anyway, my number four. I think this is going to be saved. Because uh, talking to other people on the podcast, I think another person here loves this movie. Julia Ducarnus, Titan, anyone? Yeah, I <laughs> save I <don't>. it. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save it, but I'm going to say that's my number four t- pick. But we'll save it for uh, when it comes up in Nick's list.
1: Okay. So we're up to number three, Yowzers.
0: What is Aaron's uh, number three? I right. need to
1: know. My number three is, uh, Poor Things.
0: Hmm. Oh um, yeah. Uh, I
1: don't is that a really save
0: mean... by the way? Is that a save? Oh, it might be a save.
1: I don't know. No, it's not a save. Not a save. Oh darn. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I don't even really know how to talk about that movie. I saw it with some friends and they were like riffing on it afterwards. And I was just like still chewing on it. I think I'm still chewing on it. Maybe it requires another viewing. Uh, it's a movie that speaks for itself, but it just captivated me. Um, Yorgos Lanthimos, am I saying that correctly? Mm-hmm. I, I, yep. Am, am have been really enjoying his films. Like The Lobster, when it came out and I saw that, was just like the perfect time in my life for that movie to just like speak to my soul. Um, and uh, Poor Things get, comes pretty close to like that. I, I, I really struggle to speak about this movie, but it's like, it's just a movie that like, it again speaks for itself for me
2: do you, do you guys have thoughts yeah um, I think it's like very interesting um, I, I haven't read the book I know the book is substantially different oh, but I okay. think it's very interesting that um, Lanthimos decided with the script to riff um, oppositionally to the the film that kind of put him on the map for most people to dogtooth um so the premise of poor things is, is this woman who is pregnant um uh ends her life um and the brain of her infant child is put in her head um at which she she proceeds to live her life as this adult infant and is allowed to explore the world it is about her wonder and discovery at the world um exploring it in in this adult body but with you know uh, an infant's brain uh whereas dogtooth is also Exploring heavily the, these thematics of uh, preserved infancy, the, the premise of that one being um, th- this rich family pays for their children to have a language taught to them incorrectly so that they can never learn new information without their approval. Um, and they oppositionally are contained, and it's a heavily nihilistic film, and Poor Things is just not that. It is It is a, a film full of wonder. Um, and it's about exploration and like this very interesting way of telling a coming of age story.
0: I'm surprised yeah. it's become like this giant crowd pleaser. Because uh, mm. when, I, when I saw it at the Chicago International Film Festival, I was like, it was like really salacious and really in your face with its like sex scenes and sexuality. So I'm like, there's no way this is going to play well with the crowd. But alas, it was nominated for Best Picture. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, never mind. I'll eat a crow on that one. Uh, but <laughs> I re- I really I really like uh, poor things. I-, I love that movie. It- it's um I think my favorite part of it's just Mark Ruffalo's performance. It's oh my such God. a choice. He's just yeah. like this horny farcical character and I just I yeah, I've never seen him in a role like that, but now that I've seen him in that role, I'm like this is his element. He should do- he should do this more. So I I love poor poor things.
3: Yeah, Mark Ruffalo is a standout in the movie.
0: Uh, this is another one I've exactly. seen
3: twice, and even though mm. I I love the movie, reading the book, I read the book after watching it for the first time back in September, and so reading the book, it actually kind of changed my view of the film in a way that I can still appreciate it, but the book, uh, without spoiling anything, the book just goes further after the ending. Let's say there's an epilogue <laughs> that the movie mm. doesn't get into, that completely changes the way you think about Bella's story and the way it is told and it does go into some people's criticism which is very fair that it is still a man talking about this story and like putting a lot of emphasis on 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 women's body and sexuality in a way that can feel a bit you know um uncomfortable in terms of male gazing i still think he avoids a lot of pitfalls that other directors do um, and also the narrative takes a more philosophical, let's say, growth for Bella's character that isn't just purely sexual, which I also appreciate. I think the entire sequence with Anna Shigula on the boat is is delightful. Um, but <laughs> yes, it's one of those rare instances where reading the book actually changed my opinion on a movie. I mm. still love it. I watched it like a couple of weeks ago on the big screen. We have a large crowd. Everyone loved it. No one left. I, I think it's doing something right that it's very it's very mainstream, which I, I never thought mm-hmm. would be the thing, but it's just a crowd pleaser, I guess. People just like it's a comedy very and it's a so. broad comedy. I think like the fact that this and, and like Barbie and other like big comedies that are meant to just make you laugh without cynicism, without like being like Marvel type humor. Um I think it's refreshing. I think people just want to laugh in an earnest way. And this is is a very good comedy. And one of my favorites of last year, but it's not, it's not on this list. <laughs> not too many honorable mentions, actually.
2: <laughs> I'm, I'm also not nearly as hot on it, but I think it's, like, such an essential thing to see, and I think it's very interesting to see uh, Lanthimos. Like, the enthusiasm around Lanthimos has been building and building nonstop since he released *Dogtooth*. Right. So, like, he is a borderline mainstream name, and this is, like, easily his most palatable film, save, like, The Favourite. Um... Which has much less of his fingerprints on since I I don't know if he even did a script pass on that one. Um I may be incorrect. Um but Alistair yeah, I think Gray he is a
3: screenwriter for the last two, so yeah. Um,
2: you can
3: tell the difference.
2: Alistair Gray, the the author of the book, is is phenomenal. I highly recommend uh, nineteen eighty two Janine if you if you enjoyed his the, uh, the Poor Things. Um and I uh, I also do want to say uh uh, there are, like, a lot of comparisons to, like, Terry Gilliam's visuals. Um, and I do agree with that. Um, and I also think it's very interesting how uh, this film is dealing so heavily with these very artificial uh, CGI renders for establishing shots. I think it's it's fantastic. They're so out of place, out of time. They don't reflect the interiority of the spaces they're navigating. And I think that's uh, that's lovely and so surreal. Um, and it reminds me of uh, of just like so many like '90s pre renders and in, in video games in particular, like yeah. mist and yeah. like a lot of point and click yeah. stuff. And I think that's just like a fantastic space. I love CGI that is willing to explore this distance to artificiality, and I would love to see him integrate more of that into his free- future films. I agree. I
0: definitely yep. agree. That's, well, a that's a great point.
2: point. All right, Nick.
3: Number three is Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans. Oh, um, cool.
2: might be much higher up on my list.
3: Oh, it's the save?
2: But yeah, save yeah, yeah. I mean yeah. we can talk okay. about it now. No, no to I'll save I'll do it. It. It.
3: it. Save it for later. Save <laughs> it the evening.
2: Um, or, morning. <laughs> so hmm. All right. Um am, am I next? So you're number three, yeah. Yep. <laughs> okay. My number three um is gotta be Red Rocket. Um, directed oh, by Sean Baker.
0: Right.
2: Um I think it like I I love Sean Baker. I think he's incredibly talented. Um he has like this real way um with um working with non-actors and bringing out these like incredible organic performances from them. This is his masterpiece. This is the first one. Like no notes. It's just like incredible incredible film. Um like being run over by a steamer. I don't want it. I like I want everyone to go into this movie as blind as possible. I know it is a very upsetting film. Um, I think Simon Rex um, has given one of the best performances of the decade um, and it has become very comfortable with um, navigating these uh, incredibly abhorrent characters. There's a movie he's in called The Sweet East um, that will be coming out pretty soon that he, he plays a differently reprehensible character. But it follows uh, Simon Rex's character. He has spent, you know, over a decade in California uh, attempting to make it as a porn star, and he has returned to his hometown of Texas City, Texas, Um, moved back in with his mother, and there is a uh, young girl who works at a donut shop down the street. And the film is about that it is one of the most upsetting black comedies in existence it mm. makes happiness seems like child's play um and it it is all the characters are so grounded and nothing it's not like operating in absurdity It is it is just like confronting a, a very very dis- some very very disturbing subject matter um but with an individual who is so deeply um, arrested in his development, that it's hard not to marvel what at what is happening in front of your eyes.
0: Hmm. Great pick! I've been wanting to see this one.
1: Yeah, no, me too. That's a uh, that's a good endorsement. I I love uh, supremely bleak feel bad movies. They they, they kind of comfort <laughs> me for some reason. But like, so I'm in
2: for it. This is the yeah. only one that starts with Backstreet Boys. Mm. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I loved uh, the. Uh, I've seen like two two of his films. I saw the Florida Project, which I really liked, and I saw. I think it's called Starlet, which I thought mm-hmm. was really good too. Um, so I need to catch up with him. Uh, I will say that he's very active on Letterboxd, and it's it's funny reading his Letterbox reviews because they'll always criticize the movie if it's not shot on film. He's like, eh, it was shot on digital. It would have been better if why why didn't they shoot on film? And people kind of make fun of him for
3: it, but. Uh, yeah I gotta check out this new one it's it's worth it I agree it's it, it's one of those movies I think if I saw it again I would just like fall fully in love with it because I saw it the first time and I really liked it it was just lacking that extra something to just make me fully connect but I was also going through a cinematic burnout in the end of like 2021 beginning of 2022 it was just like I wasn't loving a lot of cinema um,
2: understandable yeah yeah
3: it was it was a lot to to watch but yeah it's 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 haunting it's haunting Truly. but you're also having such a good time i think especially uh, like sean baker manages to create even in the other movies but i don't know like you go to watch a movie and you're like oh protagonist someone i like someone i like sean to and you start <laughs> red rocket like oh yeah you know he seems he's so nice in his own way <laughs> yeah <laughs> but then just the movie keeps going and, and that's going. the pill that they make
2: you swallow Ooh,
3: it's, it's, it's a car crash and you're just like watching it unfold and it's not going to, nothing's going to change. You can't stop it. Um, kind of, I, I might actually watch it one of the next days because it's been on my like two rewatch list and this is kind of pushing me over the edge. I think I (laughs) I will do it. I think I'll do
2: it. I might do the same. I haven't seen it since it dropped in like beginning of 2020, 2021, somewhere around. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I gotta check. I gotta check it yeah, out. I, um, I, I don't. I don't know why I missed it. I, I need to. Yeah, I need to get on that.
2: There was like no fanfare for this film. It came out and people talked about it for a moment, but it is like one of those films that, like, based on how we've been talking about it, you probably know what happens. But like, sure. it is one of those films that you know it's it's talking about a specific thing that you don't want to talk about. Period. So you know.
0: I'm down. I'm down with it. All right. Orin. All right. My number three is, uh, well, I feel pretty strongly about my number three, like, or my top three. These films feel like they were made specifically for me. Hmm. So it's kind of hard for me to separate, like, looking at it objectively versus me just, like, falling in love with the movie. Uh, My number three is Annette by Leos Carrick's, which um, I love Leos Carrick's. Uh, I didn't really truly start to love him until Holy Motors in 2012. Like, I loved his earlier stuff, like, I love it saying, Lovers on the Bridge. Like, I thought those were really interesting movies, but I didn't, like, love them. But um, I think starting with Holy Motors in 2012, his movies developed a sense of, like, middle age mel- melancholy to them that kind of underlines all of, like, the genre exuberance and, like, the crazy tones and the surrealism. And I really related to that melancholy beneath all of that. Because when people talk about Holy Motors, they're talking like, oh my God, there's, he's playing with so many genres and it's like so cool. But like, I, I loved The Feels. The Feels is what got me with that movie. And I think Annette leans into that even more. And it's, um, just to give some context, Annette is a collaboration between Leo's Carrick's and the Sparks brother, brothers. And it's like an entire musical. And but it's like a very surreal musical that uses a lot of counterintuitive uh, choices, like Adam Driver's the main character, and he's singing out of key the entire time. And there's like um, a musical scene, like accompanied to somebody giving birth, which is like, why would you ever do that? <laughs> but I just like I, I can't remember the last time I saw a movie where the director is constantly making these choices that are so bold, but I'm so here for it. And I ended up watching that movie like seven or eight times. And I like loved it every time. And I still listen to the soundtrack to this day. Um, It's probably my favorite Leo's Carrick's movie. Maybe, maybe controversial because it's not usually the one that you see people choose, but it's the one that I connected to the most. So my number three is Annette by Leo's Carrick's.
2: Look, it's it's maybe uh, the best movie about the Super Bowl, so like sports fans, <laughs> yes. sports fans tune in. Um, I think it's so fantastic that Sparks and Leo's Carricks collaborated for this film. I can't think of a more complementary duo. Uh, Sparks are so absurd, like they're almost they're like uh them and Devo are both kind of adult weirdo, um <laughs> where they're like kind of navigating this this uh goofy absurdity but like you know they're they're navigating on a like truly interesting artistic plane um of camp uh in within their music and leos Carricks, i think throughout his filmography has has increasingly learned leaned into surrealism kind of um truly breaking out into that with holy motors which is like you know, it's it's such a silly movie that that uh, so often arrives at such uh, great emotional weight. And Annette and just fully commits to that by effectively making an opera um, with uh, about about a doll um, that comes to life. We love Chucky. Um.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I like it's so funny. I don't even like musicals that much, um, but like this one, by the time I got to like the seventh viewing I'm am like literally like singing to the songs as they're as they're like going out and like um I will say uh, Simon Helberg from um The Big Bang Theory he has like an amazing performance in it and he has this one oh, yeah. conductor scene that I've seen like a million times because like his acting in it and the music he's like he's basically giving backstory and exposition while he's conducting an orchestra and then he's like hold on one second and then he hits the crescendo and goes crazy and then he goes back to the exposition it's like one of the best scenes i've ever seen in a movie and i just i've seen it like a million times because i'm just so blown away by it and every time i re-watch the movie i'm like looking forward to his scenes like he has another scene where he's like i'm just a lowly conductor i'm a lowly conductor they're all songs like about like really dumb Subjects, but like I just, uh, I I, ugh, I can gush about. it I just love it. It's one of my favorite movies.
4: Yeah,
3: no, it's, 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 so amazing. it's amazing. It's amazing. I watched it at. I was like the, the New Year's Eve celebration. It was like oh, one last movie before midnight. Let's just put on a net. <laughs> it was. Um, it didn't go over well with the other guests. You know, um, I don't know what they were expecting, <laughs> sure. but I was blown away. I was blown away. Um I listened to the soundtrack so many times. I think that the last song, Sympathy for the Abyss,
2: just That's gets me.
3: So um and it's probably like the the most full song in the whole um in the opera because yeah, I agree, it's not even just amusing. It's it's a full-on opera. The way that everyone's sure. always singing about their emotions and I love that the big sweeping romantic theme the lyrics are just, we love each other so much, hard to explain it, <laughs> we love each other so much, and <laughs> that's it, <laughs> just repeated on a loop. It's super simple on an emotional level, and that way it just cracks, it manages to grasp at something deeper. It's almost also like weirdly autobiographical about his own like sadness with the death of his wife and raising a child, mm-hmm. like it, the, the Adam Driver in the last scene looks just like him. <laughs> just like him spitting image probably not intentional there's a lot of movies that are very introspective from filmmakers just looking back at themselves and their past from the past few years and i think this one is not talked about in that terms very often but i think there's some readings there that i don't know someone should do not me (laughs) some other critic can figure out and write a good essay on um but yeah no Uh, amazing film i love how
0: in the opening credits he shows up with his daughter like I, th- I thought that was a really great choice and yeah um, and yeah it's yeah I- i'll try not to gush about it further but I- one last thing i'll say like tales you said it has like the best super bowl scene it also has like my favorite song about the me too movement which i've like heard a million times too <laughs> six women have come forward it's so good i just thought oh. Okay, I'll shut up about Annette now. <laughs> <laughs> Someone's going to
2: watch this off of our recommendation and be like, "What? Oh, i, I got to stop listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, movie is, rocks.
0: Yeah, Annette is, yeah, like, last thing, last thing. and is, like, one of those movies, like, people will ask me, it's, like, one of, it's one of your favorite movies of recent years. I never say Annette because there's no way I'm recommending that movie, you know, because, <laughs> like, there's no way people are going to like it. I just, like, it was made so specifically to me. <laughs>
1: Awesome. Awesome. I have to check it out. Yeah. Okay. Okay. We are number 2 uh, um and it I'm on deck. So my number 2 is the most recent film I have watched, but it is Killers of the Flower Moon.
0: Oh, hell That's, yeah.
1: I didn't know this would make your list. That's awesome. So good. I I didn't know if it was going to make my list or not, but um yeah, I it it was it was a moving film. Uh I it's it you know it like I guess I knew a little more about it than I maybe should have going into it because I, I saw it slightly late but um I like that it's kind of starts with the premise of being maybe kind of like a more fun western epic and then quickly becomes not fun at all um I loved that Leonardo DiCaprio was willing to like contort his face and play this imbecile who just thinks at every moment that he's doing the right thing when he's just committing horror after horror. Uh, Robert De Niro was, was, was of course, really, really, you know, ter- terrific performance. Um, I think it's probably the last time we're gonna see uh, Martin Scorsese get a $200 million budget to make this kind of film, so it, it, that's that's part of the reason that motivates it on this high on the list. But it, it was just really a, an incredibly moving film, and I didn't know anything about the history of this or the story, which, which I guess was all largely True and, and fairly accurate to my to the best of my understanding, um, but it's it's just like a little like snapshot of like American uh, uh, like like late stage manifest destiny I guess like just the slowly er- the slow erasing of a people.
0: Yeah, oh, I, yeah, no, I I love uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. I think I think what yeah I actually had the privilege to see it twice in the theater which was awesome like I saw it I had like tickets for it on Friday and then like I I was at the Chicago International Film Festival on Thursday and I got out of a movie and I was like you know what I have to see this movie right now so I bought tickets for like that Thursday night and then I saw it again on Friday and I think um I think like something that I really love about it is that a lot of people have been criticizing the movie as being kind of like Martin Scorsese's uh, gaze, like white uh, Italian gaze of of um, you know the genocide of the Osage. And it's like whether that gaze or whether that perspective is valuable. But what I love about the movie is that the movie is aware of that. And it, that's especially present in the ending radio show scene, which kind of delineates that, oh yeah, this is like, just one version of the story and you're implicated as the viewer for consuming it as entertainment. And I'm implicated as the director trying to tell this story as entertainment. So I think that ending in particular really tied that whole thing together and really kind of poked holes into itself in a way that I thought was really compelling. So, um, I said on an earlier podcast, it's like my second favorite Scorsese of the century after the Mm -hmm. Wolf of Wall Street, which is still my personal favorite. But, um, I think it's a masterpiece. I think if this is Scorsese's last movie, I hope it's not, but if it is his last movie, I think it's an amazing movie to go out on.
2: He's he's in the middle of production of another one right now. Mm.
0: His uh Jesus Christ movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Take a picture of the Pope
2: today.
3: Yeah. Living the life, living the dream.
2: I'm I'm yeah, so yeah. glad that Lily Gladstone is like getting a real mainstream recognition. Like I think like definitely regardless of how well killers of the flower moon did like people i think now know her and she's like approaching like not household name status but like one more high profile thing which is like absolutely coming she's going to be known and like i've loved her since certain women um and you know like first cow was like the first time a lot of people heard of her and she's just like over the moon for her best performance of the year so yeah.
0: incredible. Yeah, yeah, that's that's honestly like I agree with that. That's Lily Gladstone's the best performance of the year. However, I also thought Robert De Niro's performance that's probably my favorite De Niro performance since the mid 90s. Like I oh, thought yeah. he was mm-hmm. he was so evil in that movie in a way that was so relevant cuz like a big part of the American story is like The most likable uncle in the in the town is also (laughs) the guy who's slowly engineering the most terrible things that are happening in that town and i thought he captured that so well and um i love him in the irishman he's great in the irishman but like that was the performance for me like Mm -hmm. he was so good in that role yeah yeah
3: i came super close to putting this at my number fifth spot it was on it at one point um it's it shook me it really sh- It's the only, like, it's only the second movie I've ever seen in IMAX because we don't have I- IMAX screens here in Italy. Well, there's only, like, one very far away from me. But I watched it when I was in Berlin back in October, and I was floored. Nearly had a breakdown <laughs> after leaving the screening. It just kind of just dawned on me after, like, a few minutes, everything that I had watched. It's It's powerful in a way that not many big epics nowadays are powerful it's sweeping it's depressing it's brutal but it doesn't linger on the violence or gore or anything like that um it's it's one of my favorite scorsese for sure um might be my my personal favorite pick for like 2023 oscars if one movie had to win best picture i'd give it to this to be honest but yeah great film i think i'm in the same boat
0: actually um uh, Because May-December didn't get nominated. That was another movie that I almost picked. But, uh, yeah, it's, um, yeah, that's, like, another thing that I think is worth talking about is Scorsese's approach to violence, especially in his last couple movies. Like, I think uh, with his earlier stuff, he really leaned into the violence and, like, also into this idea that like this person that you're hearing the story from is like the most evil person in the world but he could also be your best friend like kind of like in the wolf of wall street goodfellas even casino but i think with the irishman and also killers of the flower moon i think he's really taken pains to broaden the perspective so that you're not just hearing the perspective from like the white people, the evil white people. And also he's dialed down the violence and making it more sad and depressing. You know, it's not really like something that there's no real ambiguity in the sense that like, or there's more ambiguity, I should say in the sense that like, you're, you're not like, he's not glorifying the violence in any sort of way. This is like all really sad what you're saying. And I think with his last couple of movies, people are like, Oh, they're like more boring. They're not as fun as Wolf of Wall Street, but I think they're more interesting in other ways.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree. I, I find it very interesting when a um, director or anyone starts to like reconsider their relationship with with violence and its entertainment value as they age. I think it happens to a lot of great directors. I think it happens to a lot of people, um, a lot of artists, um, and it's always a like, very interesting journey to observe.
0: 100% agree.
2: Um... All right, uh, I guess my my number yeah, I two. Think, I, I
0: think we're oh.
4: on Nick. Oh, oh it's my, my turn. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead, Nick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, also, I was thinking about
3: things. The Osage and Lil' Gladstone. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my, my number two is the most recent movie. It's the only 2023 film in this mm-hmm. list. Um, it's La Chimera by Alicia Orvacher. The only Italian movie. I didn't pick it because oh, yeah. of bias. Uh, I'm actually incredibly critical. <laughs> of contemporary Italian cinema. There's very few filmmakers working in Italy because Godin, you know, just is hated here and so he left the country like decades ago at this point. Um, but Alicia Rorvacher, she's probably the best filmmaker working today in Italy. And Lucky is her masterpiece. Genuinely so. It's a movie that I've seen three times in the theater. <laughs> which I have nice. never done. I've seen some movies twice. Never three times. Um it's a type of movie that once it finishes, I was just like, I want to see it again, and I, it was just so overwhelming. It's to, to, to be very brief about the story for those who don't know it. It's about an English an Englishman played by Josh O'Connor who lives prison after having committed some crimes, um, and he reunites with a gang of grave robbers who are basically infiltrating old Etruscan tombs to find. Basically, um, I, don't, I don't know the English name, but like um, uh, like artifacts that are left for the dead when they go in the afterlife. That's what they were buried with. Uh, and so they're just, you know, stealing them and selling them on the black market to make some money. And throughout this movie, it's just Joshua Connor speaking some English, but primarily Italian, which is pretty impressive. Um, in this very fantastical version of Italy... Um, with this colorful cast of characters and while he's robbing tombs he's also trying to find his lost love this woman who's just kind of vanished you don't know what happened to her um he knows her mother very well who's played by Isabella Rossellini and she's kind of like a Miss Havisham type who's living in this old decrepit house Uh, she's everything's falling apart and she's still in denial of what happened in the past it's it's such a rich film um a very compelling retelling of the Orpheus and Eurydice myth from ancient Greece, and it's so like this is pure cinema to me. It's shot entirely on film, including some sixteen mm scenes. The soundtrack is a mixture of classical music and opera, uh, Italian songs from the sixties and seventies, and also more orchestral techno. Also some techno tunes from like the Berlin scene. It's it goes places and. I haven't been able to stop thinking about it and, and I, it it just injected such a strong creative juice in my veins after watching it it just made me want to go out and shoot something it's it's, it's, it's incredible. I, I think they've completely... I think, who is it, like Neon, I believe, in the USA. Uh, but even in Italy, they've completely botched the release date and the release schedule of it. It was in limited release, but people actively asked theaters <laughs> to keep it in. They were, like, calling them. And even, like, Rohr Wacker and Joshua Connor, they made, like, an Instagram video saying... If we know it's in few cinemas, you want to watch it, just go and ask for it, and it will
4: come. <laughs> and it's
3: still showing. Even if it's, like, one screening or two screenings a week, it's still showing after two months, which almost never happens here outside of, like, you know, your... Well, back when big blockbusters were making a lot of money. So, uh, absolutely. I know uh, you watched it, Orin. I don't know if you've seen it, Taylor and Aaron. No, I haven't. Um, oh, <laughs> just keep it on your radar whenever it's possible. It's Will do. so fulfilling, so fulfilling. Um, and also another ending that moved me to tears. <laughs> it's one, of, no, the it, drops, one mm-hmm. of the best needle drops. One uh, of the best needle drops. It's an Italian song, but it's... Oof,
4: oof.
3: Yeah. And stay for the credits, that's the last thing I'll okay. say. At the end of the credits, Rohr Wacker lists like, references like creative references, like paintings yeah. and, and books. Oh. I was cool. like, I've never seen this before. Like she she like reined Maria Rilke's version of the Orpheus and the Rede me. So I was like, wow <laughs> So I want to watch it one last time, like when it comes out on Vida or whatever, just to write down <laughs> all of the references and seek them out. Because it was all new to me. So yeah.
0: Yeah, that's a, no, it's 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 awesome. I, I think um I really need to see it a second time because uh I think I saw it right after at the chicago international film festival my favorite movie of the decade so like i was still recovering Uh i was still recovering from that movie so i feel like i wasn't able to truly appreciate lucky man on its own terms but i did really like it and i do want to see it a second time i think the thing that stood out to me the most is that people are always like saying like who's the best practitioner of like shooting on film and i think Alice might actually be. Like the way that movie is shot on film was just captivating and so fantastical and the you could just feel the magical realism bleeding from the screen. Um and I loved the ending. The ending was like really surprised me and I, I also loved the pacing of it. Um I always I I love movies that are you know on the shorter side that are like 90 minutes where every scene counts but I also love movies that are just like in no rush to get anywhere Mm -hmm. and I love how this movie just kind of lets you hang out in the atmosphere and the characters and it's there isn't like a point a and point b it wants you to go to so quickly so um I really I really liked it, and I do want to see it again I think it's a great choice
3: yeah. Lots of great musical montages, lots of a lot of non actors as well that get a chance to shine. Some folk ballads are sung. It's such a it's such a hard movie to sell. I know someone said it's like the best Indiana Jones movie of twenty twenty three, but I couldn't agree more. <laughs> if you're gonna watch yeah. one movie about someone like stealing artifacts, just just well, just don't watch Indiana Jones five, but you know, this one is amazing. I, one last
0: thing I want to say about it. Uh what you said about distribution res- resonated with me cuz um like as much as I like, you know, A24 and Neon, I really sometimes like if a movie isn't like this like messed up Ari Aster horror movie like or something like that, they're like, "Okay, we could just dump this in January somewhere," Truly. you know? Like what is up with that? <laughs> I don't get it. Um I don't, yeah they need to become better better at that like a24 it's like why is talk to me the big movie of the year like there's so many Ugh. other movies you could have chosen you
3: know i think it's too much about for some movies awards consideration for other movies just financial gain right. and they keep and and You know, there was a point, and I'm talking, uh, like, I I witnessed this from afar, (laughs) because, like, A24 and Neon don't exist here in Italy. Um, But they see whenever they, they keep on buying rights from movies, and decide, oh, they're buying this, and then this, and then this, and then this. And then just focus on that one movie per season. I was like, why did you put all your money on Ferrari, <laughs> which was not going to be a big success? <laughs> it's
2: so infuriating. As, as someone, you know, who doesn't enjoy that many, like, big ma- mainstream films, it's like it is both of them, but especially A24 are, like, increasingly leaning into, like, brand and image curation, which is, like, right. probably necessary given the state of films right now. But, like... End of December, beginning of January, I saw the new film by Barry Jenkins' girl a girlfriend, I believe, uh, Raven Jackson. Um, All Dirt Roads, Taste of Salt. And mm, nobody yeah. talked about this film. Uh, great movie with... The script needs some work, but, like, beautiful <laughs> Terrence Malick-esque film. And, and uh, then Occupied City, which, like, I get why they didn't promote that. That's uh, A24's Other movie about the Holocaust that I think is a bit better than Son of Interest, as far as I'm concerned. That's um, fine. Uh, and, and it's four hours long, and it's a documentary, and it's it doesn't use archival footage, and there's all these reasons, but like a- A24 keeps promoting, like, the same movie over and over and over again, <laughs> and they license all these little productions, and like, even with their small budget, they just don't give them the resources that they... I don't know. Very frustrating. Thank you for bringing that up about distribution <laughs> in America. As as someone who you know works management at a theater, um, oh my god, very annoying to me.
0: Uh, yeah, I wish it were better. I really felt it this year, but yeah, it's yeah. Ugh. Anyway, hopefully it gets better. It won't, but hopefully it does.
3: <laughs> On a lighter note, you're number two,
0: <laughs>
4: Yeah, you're number yeah. two
2: my number two um both my number one and number two uh, bring a kind of similar vibe in some respects but um the 2020s have been me kind of rediscovering how much i love a big schmaltzy movie um which has immediately <laughs> given away what this is yeah. i i love a 90s blockbuster i love something with big emotions that tells you exactly how to feel those emotions and like it strings you along like you're following Hansel and Gretel's trail, and uh, the Fablemans, I think, is Steven Spielberg's best film since the '80s. Um, I you know have some minor issues, but it, it is one of the most emotionally affecting movies for me. I think it is the way to do a biopic. Maybe not the way to title it to get people to go out to the <laughs> theater. Um, I think it is so beautiful. It is so powerful at all times. Just uh, telling these little uh. Uh, you know, embellished vignettes, uh, mostly about uh, about Spielberg's life, um, in the m- most like larger than life way. Um, ever every second of my f- of this film, my my jaw was on the floor, uh, tears streaming down my face that first viewing, almost like probably two thirds of that film, without exaggeration. Um, the the performances are exactly where they need to be. Um. I I don't know what I can say that is not just me like being so exponentially huge on this film, um, and, and, and I, I I love it so much. I don't know even how to begin to form words about it. Uh, Oren, this was your number three, right?
0: <laughs> the fa- oh no, it was uh Fable. Nick's. It was number mine. Three. Nick. Yeah.
2: Okay. Okay. You you talk about it for a minute. I don't know where to start. I I it's
3: there are a lot of movies from the past few years. I have like one in my honorable mentions that we'll get to very briefly, but a lot of movies about like creating art and creating filmmaking and things like that, that's, that are very, very compelling, but none of them have reached the level of just total understanding of just how painful it is <laughs> to create art and putting yourself in your art as the Fablemans. I think there's just the one one shot that completely captures everything about the film that I love. Is when the family is having the big argument. Mother and father starting to divorce. Right. Everything's crumbling. He looks in the mirror and he sees yes. himself just the like filming it. Just like, oh, oh man, this is, this is good. Sim- this is drama. <laughs> this is great for a film. And he's just in shock. And I was like, that's, that's pretty much it. It's such a dark thought to have that I've also had. I've had like a, a, an interest, well, a, a personal experience last year that was very moving. And towards the end of it, I was like, this could make for a great film. And I made it into a short film, <laughs> so you know um yeah. it's it's the price to pay in a way for or kind of like what you were talking about as well, Aaron with uh, banes of Shar Shearing. that also captures the same feeling of like when you create art that's personal you lose something of yourself like someone someone's gonna lose something someone's gonna and you're gonna lose part of your humanity. And it sounds like it's a very serious film, but it's not. There's a lot of humor. There's a lot of heart and tenderness. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of Lynch, so the epilogue, the final scene is (laughs) just... Oh, my God. John Ford,
2: thank you for coming.
3: Uh, It's the horizon. (laughs) The horizon. It's amazing. It's... I... It's... uh, Yeah. I mean, it sounds weird to say. I've seen it, like, four times now. (laughs) I'd probably put it as my number one favorite Spielberg. I have, oh, like, yeah. nostalgia yeah, yeah, for wow. the rest of, like, you know, for Harry Potter's Indiana Jones, Jaws, mm-hmm. whatever. But this one is just... It it's different. Also my number
2: one. Like It's different. This movie that's, like, about the inability to properly, like, process your own life unless you're making something creative out of it. And, like, being able to look at it. Like, look at what has actually happened it, it, in, in, unless you, like, embellish it in your own form. Um true truly uh stupefying film um and and just like some of the best cinematography of the decade so so beautiful um and, and shot he's on the just volume. doing the spielberg thing. yeah it's it's
3: amazing doesn't look like it um, i don't know i don't know how they did it it's a spielberg touch spielberg talent
0: i, I love how much you guys love uh, you you both love this movie uh i um yeah, I, I, I need to give it a second shot. I actually did not connect to it that much, but I do love the David Lynch scene. The David Lynch scene's just, like, incredible. And I do love the scene that you, you were all talking about with the um, with the mirror shot and um, holding it, the camera. Uh, uh, hearing both of you be so effusive about it and so excited about it is inspiring me to give it a second shot. Mm. It's
1: worth it, it's worth it. I gotta put this gotta
0: on my list. It. it sounds good. Uh my number two? Is that right? Or number That's two? It. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, uh, my number two is interesting because like um here's the thing. Some context. Uh I I really love science fiction of like the 70s and 80s and 90s. Because there's like a certain tone that comes with those types of science fiction movies where the movies are kind of less about this like narrative propulsion and they're more about sitting with concepts and themes that are compelling. And, um, and I just love that. I love like, I love that kind of vibey science fiction. That's more conceptual than it is dramatic. And I haven't really seen a movie like that this century. You know, I'm, I've am i been watching all these science fiction movies by like Alex Garland or like uh, even Danny Boyle. And I'm like, I like this, but this isn't really, like, what I'm looking for in science fiction until David Cronenberg came back and made Crimes of the Future. Let's go. And Crimes of the Future is just, like, totally that. It's like, I think, Aaron, actually, described it perfectly when on a previous podcast. It's like somebody took a science fiction movie out of the 70s or the 80s and just implanted it in 2022. And I've seen it. It's the most... Times I've seen a movie in a theater. I saw it seven times in the theater, and I, nice. I like, was, it was like a ritual. I'm like, I gotta rewatch this. I gotta rewatch this. I gotta rewatch this. And I, I think the thing that's so surprising about this movie is that it's not a body horror movie. It's like it's actually a, a movie about transformation and transcendence, evolving with the times, accepting who you are. It's it's actually a like as Cronenberg describes it, a body beautiful movie. And I think that's the reason why a lot of people didn't connect to it because they were expecting, because Neon was advertising it, it as like, oh, it's like this really fucked up body horror movie from the master of body horror. But when you watch the movie, it's actually really vibey and really thoughtful and like really sad and really beautiful. And the way the ending evokes Passion of Joan of Arc to symbolize how um, Viggo Morton's, uh, Saul Tensor, v- Vigo's character is accepting transformation, accepting Um, the times that he lives in and that, and the need to transform with those times, I just thought was so beautiful. And I also love how the movie is just like this really surreal reflection of the COVID era. It's kind of like David Cronenberg was like looking at the pandemic era and he's like, what is my weird, surreal dreamscape version of that? (laughs) And that's what crimes of the future spawned. Like, I just think it's like such a dream space to inhabit. I love rewatching it. My one criticism of the movie is that I kind of almost wish there's like a sequel to the movie just because I want to inhabit that space more but at the same time I love how the movie leaves so much up to the imagination because David Cronenberg kind of an underrated trait of his is that he um he, he's a master of of like off-screen narrative where you're mm-hmm. kind of left to think about like what else is going on in this world that's not being said you know and my example of that is, like, in A History of Violence, one of his previous movies, he, um, like, he, he he deliberately does not show, like, what the community thinks of the main character after a certain point. He kind of, like, leaves it up to your imagination, like, what the community is thinking. And Crimes of the Future, it's, like, the same thing. It's, like, how does this world operate? How do governments operate? Like, like what kind of world is this? And I love that he leaves so much to the imagine, up to the imagination. And um, I could just talk about this movie forever, but I just... Uh, Really connected to it. Um, it's one of my favorite Cronenberg movies at this point. It's like a top five, maybe for me, for me for him. And I love it. I'll stop talking about, it. but yeah, it's my number two, Crimes of the Future.
1: Nice. I almost put that on my list. I I need to rewatch it. Like it definitely left a strong impact. But I've uh, lots happened in my life since I last watched it, and I need
2: to revisit that. It rocks. I do. I do also find it like. Kind of aggravating how Cronenberg uh, gets talked about, uh, especially oh, like in pop culture and by people who've seen like two movies from him. Because he really doesn't make <laughs> horror movies. He made like a right. couple when he was making exploitation films, but like even like even like Videodrome and like the the Fly kind of is, but it's also kind of doing a like you know a Spielberg poltergeist kind of not quite horror movie, more more sentimental. Um, he he doesn't make those, and. He is known as the body horror guy because he does operate in like horrific um, and often very beautiful uh, articulations of the body, but uh, he's got so much more to him and it's so interesting to see Crimes of the Future like kind of harken back to like the Videodrome, Naked Lunch um, era of his career um, while still like so solidly operating in, in the timbre he's been doing since, you know, since like Maps of the Stars or whatever. Mid 2000s. Yeah.
0: I, I always think it's interesting because people will watch his movies with a certain expectation that they're going to be like really messed up. But like my favorite, my two favorite Cronenberg movies, actually I have, I have multiple favorites. It's hard to <laughs> be truth, but like two of my favorite Cronenberg movies are Crash and Cosmopolis. Yep. And both of those movies, like, are actually really restrained, and it's more about like a vibe and a feeling that he's evoking, like this feeling that you're like becoming um, increasingly disassociated and detached from the world around you in a way that I find incredibly emotive and fascinating, and they're feelings that I've felt before. And um, I think a lot of people just go in with the wrong expectation. They're like going into crash, like, Oh, it's going to be like so disturbing, fucked up. And it is disturbing, but like, it's really like a mood and the feeling that he's trying to tap into that. I think is so resonant.
2: Those are also uh, my, my favorite Cronenberg films. Um, Cronenberg is, like, so foundational to me. Um, I first saw Videodrome when I was 11, and I became, like, totally obsessed with it. I, I would tell everyone it was, like, my favorite movie for, like, a decade. Um, and, uh, like, uh, it's 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 very tragic how, how misunderstood he is, but it is always delightful seeing people kind of discover what he's actually doing, which is uh, uh, more often than not quite beautiful or more restrained than they ever expected. And this is, like, one of his most beautiful films.
0: uh, (laughs) It's also very funny. yeah.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: I, I always like to joke with people that um, Cronenberg's best movies are the movies that have the lowest Metacritic scores. <laughs> so, like, Videodrome, I think, has, like, a 60 on Metacritic. Cosmopolis has, like, a 50 on Metacritic. Crash has, like, a Crash 48 was Pam, on Metacritic. yeah. It's like, those it's are all my up. favorite ones.
4: <laughs>
0: so, Same. <yeah. laughs> uh, anyway, Cronenberg, lo- we-, we love you.
1: Absolutely. All right, uh, now we're down to the the final the final choices. Um, number My number one movie, I think is gonna be based off previous comments, a little controversial. Uh, but um, hmm. it's okay, let me set this up a little. It's a movie that I think is not entertaining at all, probably fairly dull. Um, it kind of is one metaphor that it just keeps hitting you over the head with over and over again. But it was probably the most moving film experience I've had this year, more so than any other reason because of its like relative position to like world events and where I'm sort of at and my own sort of thoughts about my own heritage and, and things like that. But uh, Jonathan Glazer,
2: Yeah Jonathan uh, Glazer, yeah
1: Glazer's. the zone of interest uh, it, it it spoke to me and I, and I I spent a lot of time prior to even knowing about that movie thinking about what it might be to live on this one side of a wall where you're looking at people on the other side of the wall who are suffering and to just go about your life every day so that had been something that was really already on my mind and that's kind of like the main purpose of that movie um yeah I don't know Taylor you had you had more different thoughts I'd be curious to hear what you had to say yeah
2: um so yeah I'm I'm not negative on the movie. Mm -hmm. I think it is one of the most like exceptionally composed films of the year. I think it is, you know, an emotional gut punch. And very, very actively, I think it is so stylish. And that's Mm -hmm. like about where my issues start to crop up with this film. So this film owes a lot to the film The White Ribbon. Which is a much more distanced film that... Can feel like there is almost nothing going on. But there are just like hor- uh, horrific seeds being planted in the minds of these children in the in these horrible um, living conditions in 1917. These children who will grow up, you know, be adults in the uh, 30s and 40s. Um, and it, it, it is very open about its influence. Um, both films are like very much about the banality of evil um, a glazer or whoever the casting director was hired a lot of people who were in this other film by Michael uh, Mikhail Hanukkah yeah yeah um and for me like I think that most people will watch the right white ribbon and like who, who aren't like you know into his thing and get a lot less from it than zone of interest but I found zone of interest um, a massive spectacle i think it is very disgusting in how obvious it is about like drawing your attention toward the thing we know it's is all go- oh, we all know is going on mm-hmm. i think it is flattening familial structure into something as uh th- that can resemble uh modern american conceptions of like the conservative um familial structure whether, rather than like the more feudalist um family structure in order to make the drama that zone of interest wants to explore more accessible uh for for anyone who doesn't know zone of interest is about uh rudolf hess who uh and his family who uh he was the common uh the commandant at auschwitz who worked there longer than anybody else he lived with a literal white picket fence um on two sides of his house and then on the other two sides were um the wall of auschwitz and throughout this movie it has the most stunning Audio direction of the year, oh, yeah. without question. Like January, like depending on if you call it whatever year we consider it coming out. Um, it, it is stupefying, but it also is like, it just keeps. Be- it's it's very repetitive in how and in, in intrusive in. It's like okay, now you're hearing like the sound of humans burning alive in the background over and over and over, and like every other shot has this. Um, very crap. Like not cr- like obviously like this is an atrocity, but like it's um, and and I a, a similar point was articulated in um I forget the 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 critic, but uh, there's a really good review um in the New Yorker, um that touches upon uh, upon a similar point. But the author uh, of Mouse, it, uh,
0: Brody? Richard Brody. Yes, Richard yeah.
2: Brody. Um, yeah. there's there's this concept of Kish in how. Um of all of the atrocities Um that humanity has done, uh the Holocaust is the most well trodden topic. Far and away. Like there most people don't know about any other war crimes besides like some vague like you know a thing that Russia did, whatever. Um but like it is so well trodden um, that any level level of glamour, any level of imbued watchability to me comes off as, like, very disgusting. Um, and very vapid. And I think that John- Jonathan Glazer, I think his strengths are in boiling something down into this, like, dazzling, stylish, disturbing thing. And on a lot of levels, that, like, really works for the subject matter. But mm-hmm. to me, it just fails to connect. Um... While also like it does draw out those emotions in me. I am feeling disgusted actively and like you know, I am prepared for that like going into a film on this topic, but it's you know it's the it it's it's nowhere near as like cartoonish as a lot of Holocaust media, but it's like you know, I as as what I think most people um, in, in in general, um, ha, you know, consume a lot of media about fascism and the way fa- fascism manifests and the way fascism plays out in different cultures. And I don't know, this one, this one just uh, left a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth. While I still think it's like an essential movie that's impeccably made, mm-hmm. um, that is like abs- will leave you absolutely floored, no matter if if you come out where I did or not. Um, but like, go see this movie, and I, I completely also do understand like. Do appreciate like fine, uh, like getting just so much out of this film. I I, I hope that uh, that my complicated feelings on this film does does not at, at all trample anyone else's enthusiasm on the movie. Um, but that's just where I land on it.
1: No, that was that was. I, I think you made some
2: good criticism
1: there. Um, I, I God, I remember being like. A teenager and reading somebody's review of uh schindler's list and they called it emotional pornography i don't know who was this, but like stuck with me forever it's probably I was terry like, gilliam
0: or something <laughs>
1: like it was i was like ah that's what it is and and i do think that yeah holocaust movies tend to fall into a, a trope of being schmalzy and 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 like emotionally pornographic and and also like there's a lot of them right um but I guess the thing that, that really connected with this movie is I didn't really see it as much about the Holocaust. I mean, it was about the Holocaust, but, like, much more as a metaphor for multiple things occurring in, in the modern world, which I guess was Jonathan Glaser's intention. Um, and it really spoke to me on that level. Uh, so, yeah.
0: That's, uh, yeah. It's, that's a great point, Aaron. I, that's actually – I also liked the movie. I, I think I'm in between both of you. Uh, I – really like it but i'm still kind of figuring out if i love it and but i will say that um it didn't connect to me as like a holocaust drama it connected to me more as like these are people who don't think they're evil they're just like people who are motivated by their careers motivated by like their family there's like discussions of like oh you're going to move to like a different part of the country uh for this job that's going to uproot our lives it's like the way that they talk about their lives Is just as people who are just not aware that they're evil. And that's where it related to me. Like, that's how I related to it. Because I think, I don't want to get, like, super political, but there are certain events happening in the world right now where I think you're seeing that a lot. Like, people kind of normalizing, just blowing up civilians and acting like it's, like, totally normal. And I think that's where that movie, uh, where I connected to the movie as that concept
4: i'll be seeing
3: it in a month so (laughs) it's not gonna come out till march i'm i'm very much looking forward to it though Um, especially after hearing all of your thoughts on it Um, full
0: disclosure my uh, my favorite glazer movie is still sexy beast that's my that that (laughs) one i just love i every time i watch that movie i just have the best time so i love under the skin I really like this one, but that's still, that, that's where my heart lies as a sexy beast. <laughs> mm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, before we move on to this one, like, like you said, Taylor, the sound design is like the story in this movie. And it, 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 it's like, it's one of the few movies that I would say you just cannot get the same experience at all seeing it at your home, unless you have a
2: $50,000 sound system, because it's just,
4: <laughs> it's not yes. going to
2: have the same effect. Yeah. Everyone see this movie. Definitely. Like do it, it before it leaves theaters if it's playing in your area. Yeah, yeah. All right,
1: uh, Nick. What is your favorite film of the last four and uh, a month years?
3: For anyone who's keeping <laughs> track, it's a movie that has been saved <laughs> that was previously picked yeah. by oh, oh, Orin, okay. which is Titan by Julia Ducournau. Um, this movie. Absolutely floored me at the cinema when I saw it back in 2021. It was unlike anything I'd seen before, still is. Um, I was a fan of Julia Ducournau's previous film, *Grave*. I also like all of her like short films that she's made. But Titan is just something else. Um... One thing that I do really like about cinema, that's something like uh, Crimes of the Future captures that you talked about. It's its like a body beautiful <laughs> instead of body horror, kind of like right. finding beauty in the grotesque, something that most people would see as sick, twisted, and messed up. Julia de Cournot manages to transform into something beautiful and moving. It's a, such a powerful story of... Uh, of, of of trans identity but not even just necessarily that but just like finding yourself and through love with like a capital l that's ultimately what titan is for me even though when you describe the story it's like oh this woman who was in a car accident when she was young and she has a titan plate in her head or whatever it said um and like she's a she's a showbiz like model girl at car car shows she's also a serial killer (laughs) she ends up like running away and transforming herself literally to become the long-lost son of a fireman and it's it's such a absolutely insane when you think about it but watching it it's less crazy than it may seem and that's something that they really love. And that's another movie that was like terribly advertised because it's, like, it's so twisted, it's messed up. And you're watching it, it's and not. slow. It's
2: very meth- sweet.
3: It's so sweet. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, There's so many beautiful moments of just bodies colliding in one another. There's a lot of like Claire Denis in it, more so than mm-hmm. Cronenberg, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Yeah. And uh, the ending is beautiful. It's. It's it was my favorite movie of twenty twenty one. It's the movie that I've thought of the most of the past like decade. It has stuck with me, it has inspired me. Like I I I can only dream of achieving the level of creative freedom that she had, of just being like, I have this idea <laughs> and it might com- like not work at all. It might completely crash and burn if people don't connect with it. And yet it's so specific and so her own thing that it just works. It just works. And for that alone, I would say it's amazing. But this, the craft in it, the acting, um, the soundtrack, it's so eclectic. <laughs> it has so many different songs in it that are beautifully used. Um yeah. So much to unpack here and I, I love Titan. I'm curious to know your thoughts, horin since you had it in your uh, list number four yeah. I believe, or something. Yeah,
0: it was number four for me. I think uh I think uh Julia Du Corneau's uh the true heir to David Cronenberg, even more so than Cronenberg's son. <laughs> <laughs> um I I really I think uh what she's done is she's kinda of taken Cronenberg as a foundation. But then she's totally made it into her own thing, and I think that's a really hard thing to do because it's so easy to copy other masters, and just like kind of modernize and put like some tweaks to it. But I really think she's made it her own thing. And one thing that I really love about Titan is that um, it's like, it's like one of those movies that um, it's so great to just go into and watch because it's such a roller coaster ride. And then it's so fun to take other people and have them watch the movie to see their reaction to it. Like, my, I took my brother to go see it. And he was, like, ready to leave the theater after the 30, first 30 minutes. He was he was like, I can't take this. This is too much for me. And I was like, just wait. just Just give it a chance. And then by the end of the movie, he looked at me and he was like, that was one of the most important pieces of art that i've seen in my life (laughs) i was like wow vindicated (laughs) uh so i i really loved titan it was such like a a sweet movie i think it achieves emotions that like i look for in pixar movies and stuff but because titan has such like a roundabout way of going about it it hit a lot harder for me so, I know that's a weird thing to say, but it really <laughs> I really felt it and yeah, that's why it's my number 4. I, I love Titan. Tails, do you
2: have any thoughts on it? Yeah, I do. I I, I was like about to speak and then all my, all words left my brain. <laughs> um a Titan is also like a a very important movie for me. Um I'm big Decorno fan. Um it owes I feel like so much to the comedy of the book crash. Um, but like without (laughs) the viciousness, like again, it it is such a deeply sweet, um, film exploring gender and expression. And, uh, it harnesses this absurdity, um, in a completely different way from Annette, Annette, that absurdity, like, pulls you out into a different reality where whereas in Titan it, it is so naturally growing um from reality into this strange off-kilter world it's it's uh um it it it, it, it really is like a roller coaster it, w- it wants to hit so many different tones um but still feels so unified in what it is doing as a whole
0: I got to say, if you want a great double feature, everyone, *Titan* and Crash is, like, the double feature. Like, so I highly recommend it. I have yet to do it. I need to do that myself. But, like, yeah. Shout out
3: <laughs> for all the sickos out there! It's a great for all time. the sickos
0: out there. for all the sick, sad boy sickos out there. <laughs> there's a, there's so... a,
2: oh, go on. Oh,
4: no, go 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 go.
2: Oh, I was just gonna say, there's like a silly little thing in that film where the main character of our previous movie is implied to have been murdered on screen. Oh yeah, um, which is very fun. Yes.
0: <laughs> and isn't like a uh, Bertrand Bonello, like her dad or something? Like, yeah, that was really funny. <laughs>
3: interesting cameo director cameo
2: Mm -hmm. inconsequential what what are you saying Nick
3: no it's a good movie for sickos it's not a good movie for normal Italian ladies (laughs) I went to watch it at my local art house I was the youngest person there average age probably like 60 one one lady at the end of the screening just stood up it was like this one the palm door and I was like (laughs) yeah fuck this movie (laughs) I was, like, oh, yeah. mm. I was just there like, like wiping away some tears like yeah no yeah. <laughs> i'm just gonna leave <laughs> very carefully get assaulted that's probably by my
0: favorite uh that's probably my favorite palm d'or winner of recent times I that, that that was like yes they made the right choice with that
3: movie <laughs> definitely the boldest it's hard for these festivals to make such bold choices because it's not an easy film to market I know like I know people that work in like the Venice, behind the scenes of the Venice Film Festival and a couple from Cannes and usually like the festival heads try to push like specific narratives, a lot of like Oscar narratives especially in Venice. Sure. But it's like, Oh, it's Joker, Lion Golden Lion. It's like, Oh Whoa. god. <laughs> uh, yeah, that <laughs> oh, was why. Rough. That was rough. <laughs> <Like a> choice. <laughs> so to have something like Titan, it's like that that was Spike Lee. That was his brilliant mind. He just had a <laughs> It was so happy he even said the name like at the beginning of the ceremony. It's like, yeah, let's start oh, the ceremony. Yeah. <laughs> golden, golden palm. Oh, bless him.
0: I love how, yeah, I love how he spoiled it and everyone was like <laughs> Yeah. He's like, T 10. It's like, no, you're not supposed to say that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I love Spike yeah. Lee. What a guy. What a guy. Tails, what's your number one?
2: Um, my number one, uh, Feel weird having this on the same list as a Red Rocket. Um, but it, it pairs very well with the, the Fablemans. My number one is my second favorite Paul Thomas Anderson film, Licorice Pizza, Marijuana oh, wow. Heim, and Cooper Hoffman. Um, and we were talking about roller coaster cinema, and this is that um, to the greatest degree. Um, it, it feels like. Uh, the, the this embellished experience that just wants to take you through the lives of these people in the 70s. It's very reminiscent of like um, Fellini's Amarcord in that it's like sure. the director making a film about when he was a child, but for the most part, adults during that time when he was a child. So this like imaginary um, fantasy of what his 70s film would look like as Someone who keeps making '70s films. Um, I think I think it's so funny. I, every time I watch it, I'm just like glowing the whole time. I think it, um, it, it you know, it has some uh, controversial elements that I think uh, for me add a great deal of um, depth and add to like a thematic through line of of forcing you to acknowledge these people with very serious, unignorable and poor decisions um that they will make and will continue making um and force you to kind of love them regardless um and uh i i don't have too much to say um i'd say just give give it a watch if you haven't for whatever reason uh you might hate it um but i it, it is very much uh paul thomas anderson doing a spielberg um yeah. while doing his own thing um i i adore that film um these in my top two i i just have such positive um, feelings on both of them uh, that I have difficulty articulating much on them. But uh, I, I have a great deal of love for this picture.
0: I think I've listened to uh, "Let Me Roll It" five billion times since I've seen this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Follow the and Paul, Paul Tom- McCartney song. <laughs> yeah
2: i mean paul thomas anderson has this ability to get those like licensed soundtracks with exclusively songs you've heard a hundred times before and present them in a way that like they're fresh all over again right um which is like really fantastic skill to have because uh most directors who want to use uh uh you know like we've all seen a michael mann film before in the, from the 2000s but right.
0: <laughs> yeah i um yeah, uh I love Paul Thomas Anderson. I'm really I'm really excited for his next movie. Uh fun fact, uh Boogie Nights is a top 5 movie of all time for me. So Fuck yeah. I, I'm always I'm always interested in his stuff. Uh even when his stuff d- doesn't hit, I like think about it, I rewatch it. Uh he's definitely one of he's like a top 10 director for me. So, yeah, it's always exciting to to celebrate him.
2: I, I also can't wait for his new film. Um Inherent Vice is my favorite of his by miles by miles yeah, one of my favorite amazing. movies ever ever made um uh, favorite of last decade um possibly my favorite movie period i'm obsessed with the book i can't wait he's the only only person who could possibly adapt tension in a way that is satisfying and uh his next film is also an adaptation of the same author i'm, mm-hmm. I'm ready
0: he's also like one of the only directors where like Everyone will have like different top fives of him, but they're all valid. You know, it's like mm-hmm. it's more like it more says something about you and what you value in a movie than mm-hmm. like you know the quality absolutely. of the movie, uh, which I think is cool. So I, yeah, it's always fun hearing what people's favorite PTA movies
3: are. They're the most consistent filmographies out there.
2: It's it's wild. It's absolutely wild. Even even like Sydney, which is kind of a mess, mm-hmm. um, uh, they, like caught that on 35 and just it's impossible not to have a fun time watching his films.
0: Yeah. It's amazing. Uh, my number one, uh, I'm still kind of wrestling with my number one. Cause I feel like I digested crimes of the future more and that should be my number one. But this, this movie, I saw it at the Chicago international film festival last year and it just like made me like cry my eyes out and like, uh, it made me feel seen in ways that movies like rarely capture. So it just like felt like a movie that spoke directly to me. It's uh, Vim Vender's new film, Perfect Days. Uh, gosh, what can I say about Perfect Days? It's coming out. I'm going to see it again, finally, for the second time next week. It's finally coming to Chicago. So I'm like so excited to like re experience those emotions again. And evaluate it again. But um, I think like what I love about Perfect Day is it's like a movie about this man who lives in Tokyo and he's a uh, he cleans toilets for a living. That's like his whole thing. He lives a very solitary life. And the whole movie is just like a character study of somebody who is just constantly trying to find beauty in the mundane, but also is is constantly just trying to like at, uh, occupy a piece of have a piece of mind to stave off the traumas of his past. And I just related to that so deeply on a personal level and the way the movie goes about it is so fascinating. Like the movie is constantly calling into question if the main character is happy or not. And I think thought that was like a really compelling question to ask. And I also like how the movie never truly romanticizes this person's lifestyle. Like initially you think it is because it's like, oh, this is the ideal way to live your life, like kind of like a more working class rooted existence who's just like trying to find beauty in the everyday life and and like be creative but never do anything with your creativity to for like capitalist gains. But like I think like the movie is like constantly aware of like, you know, this guy is trying to like maybe escape something from his past that happened to him. And I just thought it was a remarkable movie. I'm so excited to see it again. Um, I really think it's cool that Vim Vendors is back in the cultural conversation because he was one of the best directors of the 80s with Paris, Texas and Wings of Desire. He continued to make good stuff, but he wasn't really in the cultural conversation in the same way. And it seems like with this film, he's like really come back in a big way, especially for me. So Perfect Days right now currently is my favorite movie of the decade.
2: I can't wait. Vin Vendors is one of my all time favorite directors. I love Paris, Texas, Swing's of Desire, American Friend.
0: Oh, definitely. Uh,
2: it's my most anticipated thing of the past like couple years and I will be there day one. I,
0: I hope yeah. I didn't overhype it, but yeah, it's just like <laughs> I-, I actually went into it as like kind of a Vin Vendors casual. Like I like all those mm-hmm. movies, especially Paris, Texas. I think Paris, Texas is oh, my God. remarkable. Um but uh even going into it I'm like I kinda like had him on the same tier as like you know like kind of like a top 50 director like i like him a lot but he's like not one of my favorites and seeing this movie i just have like a newfound appreciation for him and i just like was so taken by it like i it's it's very rare for a movie being like where i watch it i think like the last time i truly felt this way about a movie was inside lewin davis like i'm like watching it and i'm like oh my god this movie is speaking to me on a level that I just need right now in this moment in a way that's like so specific to me. So I'm like that emotional catharsis was so special.
2: Uh He has like oh, throughout his movies, he has this like, you know, consistent melancholy, but like there is that thing in almost all of his movies where it is like so clear how much he appreciates little mundanities of life. That is like hard to find reflected in a lot of like even semi mainstream art. Right. Um, And just, like, incredibly infectious if you are not already there um, right alongside him with that kind of means of perceiving the world. Um, Very, very beautiful eye he he brings to the screen.
0: I'm going to say something slightly controversial because I love Jim Jarmusch. I think Jim Jarmusch is a great director. This is the movie that I wanted Patterson to be. Like, I I saw Patterson and I thought it was good but it like missed the mark slightly cuz it was going for the same thing. Perfect Days is like really like that was the movie I wanted Patterson to be. So
3: I'm glad I got it.
2: <laughs> yeah. Let's go. Interesting.
3: <laughs> I'm I still have to watch it. It's in, it's been same. in theaters for like a month here in Italy and every single mm. screening is at the worst possible time. <laughs> And I almost went last Wednesday, but then some friends invited me to like a private screening of their short films. I was like, ah. well, you know, friends Can't go. say
2: no.
3: Main vendors
0: will stay. <laughs> you could you could also just say no to your friends and be like, yeah. sorry
3: God see the new Vim vendors. I, I did think about it, which is not really bad. I was like, I well, maybe. Otherwise, mm-hmm. um, I also know he has another documentary that's about Hansen Kiefer, the artist that's coming out. Yeah. That I'm really interested to see. He actually I shot it in the museum I was working in when I was working there. And that's one of the few times I was like starstruck because I like saw the inventors and this crew just like having coffee in the same bar of the museum when I was there. I was just like oh, I'm just gonna let let them be. <laughs> let them be, give them the space. I know he shot and it me too, and... so
2: get ready for those glasses. i I'm, I'm I'm excited for it. I'm excited.
3: <laughs> More excited for perfect days though this sounds it sounds like right up my alley. Everyone that I know that has seen it, they're like, "Nick, you're going to love it." This is like beautiful, amazing and like I love your passion for it I'm like oh. Actually, <laughs> I
4: mean, yeah, it's not like
3: it's not like saccharine in
0: any way. That's like the amazing mm. thing about it. He's able to like achieve these emotions in a way that's like not schmaltzy and not like super lame, you know. I was like which I think is so hard to do, but he totally did it for me. It's amazing. Is that a pod? Is that uh, a podcast?
2: Uh, I think we're do, just about there. Yeah. Uh, do, do we want to talk about movies that we right, just we missed? It? Just yeah. missed our top five. Let's, yeah, let's, let's we do. I, I fart forgot fart mention, I put that in yeah. the show
0: notes. Yeah, I don't have my show notes pulled up, but yeah, let, let's. I guess, uh, Aaron, do you want to start?
1: Do you have any like near misses? Um, I mean. I don't know. This this particular list was challenging for me cuz I started thinking and I was like writing down all these movies and then I'm like wait, every one of these movies came out last decade. <laughs> I was oh. like <laughs> experiencing like extreme pandemic skip, I don't but I was like oh mm-hmm. my god. Uh I need to I need to catch up. But um yeah, I don't I, I don't know like I really liked RRR. I, I know that's just Yeah. Just oh, yeah. A I love that movie. Fun movie um but uh boys afraid that. oh bo's afraid holy shit that could be on my bo's... list i didn't even think about that oh my god bo is afraid uh if if that movie was 45 minutes shorter it probably would have been super on my list. <laughs> uh, yeah that's that's another great one
0: yeah bo's afraid is like uh i think a lot of people just didn't like that movie when it came out myself included but i feel like a couple years
3: from now people are going to just come around to it so we'll see. <laughs> Listen, the the best way to experience it is what I did. Just get a fever. Um oh, mm. how much it is in like Fahrenheit, but it's it's a it's a strong fever and just watch it. It was a trip. <laughs> That's <all I'll> say. <laughs> just like mind blowing, just sweating and watching Boys Afraid. I felt like I was in the movie. <laughs> just like losing my mind. Um a weird film. Should I go with my list? I would like a... Yeah, Yeah, yeah. I'm done. Just quickly, not going to get lost in it. Almost alphabetical order, I think. I don't know. Annette, Another Round, David Burns, America Utopia, only documentary, sadly. Memoria, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, Killers of the Flower Moon, Oppenheimer, Tar, Top Gun Maverick, Souvenir Part 2, and The Worst Person in the World.
0: Those are all good movies. Though I haven't seen the Souvenir Part 2 yet. I have to see that one.
3: And that's a, like souvenir part one, part two, and uh, lost daughter, no eternal daughter, sorry. Um, just a great triple feature of Joanna Hogg. Uh, all connected, all three of them, all also about like art and movies and love and family and grief and oh, it's it's uh, I I love her a lot, but she's very she's a very specific type of like art house filmmaker. She's not easy to <laughs> easy to love. Uh, took me a while to to warm up to her, but it's worth it. I think giving giving it time, Joanna Hogg is um, worth it.
0: Very cool. What about you, Tails?
2: Um, I have a few. I want to go. I, I want to touch a little bit more in depth uh, than go that, but it. not spend a ton of time. Um, three documentaries. One of which definitely doesn't count. Um, but Gutter Restoration gets screened outside of like. Once or twice, so that one Sapa, Our Lord of Miracles, by uh, Walter Saxer, who worked heavily with a lot uh, with uh, Werner Herzog on a lot of his best stuff, including like Stryksek. Um It's a documentary about a open air penal colony in uh, the Peruvian Amazon um, that effectively like turned into this self sustaining community of sorts, um, just due to how remote it was that it was forgotten by the government um very hard to see i I think in america it's actually on tubi but um watch this movie really really overlooked Uh, one of my favorites i've seen in general this decade um other two documentaries geographies of solitude which is my favorite movie of last year i don't think it's like the best movie of last year but it's this this documentary about a woman who lives on this um uh Island that's a mile wide 20 miles long. She's lived there for 40 years documenting all of the movements of all of the plant life collecting all of the trash that washes up on shore Which is absolutely horrific. It bounces between like documentary structure um, Often like even referencing like Stan Brockage um, By like having certain roles of film like developed in kind of alternative chemicals um, Nice. And then uh, third documentary, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. Um, don't need to talk too much about it, but it's, it's about Nan Golden, uh, one of my favorite photographers, um, and her life and her relation to the opioid crisis. Um, I think it's, like, one of the strongest, like, mainstream documentaries of the decade. Um, other movies I'll quickly breeze through. Avatar, Way of the Water, I love. It yes. has some negative elements, but I watched that four times in IMAX. I would see it in IMAX, uh, this moment, if I had the chance. <laughs> it is so lovely to see, like, a very 90s ass, like, big movie in, like, the biggest sense. And, uh, James Cameron finally made a third movie that I like from him. I also like Terminator 1 and Abyss. Um, we, uh, during the break, a couple of us were chatting about Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy by Ryusuke yes. Hamaguchi, um, who did Drive My Car. It's an anthology film. I love anthology films, so I'm a little biased. Uh, very literary, very, uh, touching set of, of three stories. Check it out. Gasper, no, made something resembling something that is uh, at all palatable <laughs> to me, that isn't just crass. I thought Vortex was great, if not, if not occasionally blunt, um, this three-hour study of this couple, one of which is developing dementia in their old age. Um, uh, Triangle of Sadness, I think, is one of the funniest comedies of the decade. Um, nope another one of those like big movies Mm, um that uh, especially on second watch i I was completely overcome by it um kelly reichardt one of my favorite acted filmmakers uh finally broke out with uh the distribution of first cow in the 2020s um really lovely to see her um become almost a household name in terms of indie directors um decision to leave is one of the most like formalistically impressive films uh from park chan wook Um, somewhat divisive, but I think everyone has a a, a pretty pleasant time watching that film. Incredible, um, uh, procedural with a twist. Um, Wes Anderson's Asteroid City, another pretty divisive one that is, like, far and away my favorite thing he's touched. Um, and then my final one, uh, is, uh, The Wolf House by Cristobal León and Joaquin Cochina, uh, Cochina, um, which came out in 2018 but only got international release in the 2020s oh. um it is uh, just over an hour long it is about colonia dignidad um which for anyone who doesn't know after world war ii um a lot of nazis went to chile um and effectively um during um america's disruption of uh, or america's installation of pinochet um uh, colonia dignidad um was effectively a death camp for people who uh, were still leftists, which was anyone who just still believed in the previous um, government of Chile. Um, But this movie is not uh, direct. It is this very grim stop-motion film set entirely inside a house. Um, It uses a a variety of materials to um, morph and contort into these various... Um, fairly direct metaphors um, and I think it has some of the most amazing visuals I have ever seen in a film I'm a huge stop motion fan um, and while I'm not an Ari Aster fan uh, Ari Aster did draw broader attention to them um, by bringing them on for a lot of effects work in a specific sequence in Bo is Afraid Yeah, um, it's like really great to see them Good. so that's my, that's the last of mine
0: amazing very nice. Very nice. You know, you know I'm going to ride the Kelly Reichardt train and I'm going to say uh, Let's go. both First Cow and Showing Up are amazing. Um, I think what I love about Kelly Reichardt is that you'll watch her movies and be like, I didn't really get anything from that, but then like you'll sit with it for a couple days and you realize that like, they're movies about everything. And Showing Up for example is a movie you like you could see it as a movie about a starving artist trying to prepare for an exhibition and all the friction that comes from that and it's great for that way but i also kind of see it as a movie that's like an indictment of capitalism in the sense that these are this is a character and these are characters who are so just like obsessed with creating their art even though there's no financial gain from it and how society and family kind of like threaten that and it really got me thinking about how, how hard it is to just be an artist because everything has to be about money. And it, it's not just about expression. And I, I, I really connected to the movie on that deeper level. Um, so Showing Up is another movie that I really loved this decade. Um, I also really loved Todd Haynes' new film, made December. Uh, a movie that I saw at the at the Chicago International Film Festival Roaring Crowd. It was so great, such a great crowd pleaser, which sucks because it was released on Netflix. <laughs> so I'm just like, oh man, like this really deserves a proper theater release. It was only in theaters for like a like a week, but I wish it I wish it were longer. but um, I think the reason why I love May December is because it's just a movie about like that plays with like a really dark subject matter with really dark subject matter, but it does it in a way that's like really funny and really meta. Like many of the performances in the movie feel like they're performances from different movies. Like Natalie Portman in particular is like a walking soap opera in the movie. <laughs> and I just really connected to it. I just thought it was a fascinating movie about like our attraction to like um, ses- sensationalized stories about trauma And it kind of asks the question, like... The the movie, like, kind of, like, takes the lens of looking at, like, the tabloid story and kind of shifts it to the person who's, like, ogling it and is obsessed with it. Um, I just thought it was great. So, Todd Haynes' is May, May December. Um, And I think the other one I want to shout out, I really, really, really loved Godzilla Minus One. I could have chosen many big blockbusters. I love Top Gun Maverick. I love Avatar Way of the Water, but... Godzilla Minus One, I really connected to it because I just thought, like, the way it weaved, like, kind of kaiju monster melodrama, but kind of made it a broader story about overcoming national trauma from World War II and the atomic bomb, which, you know, you could say that about any Godzilla movie, especially the original. But for this one, like, I really felt it. Um, I, I really loved Godzilla Minus One. So th- those are my three picks for my honorable mentions.
4: Cool. Cool.
1: Uh, so many that... movies for people to watch now that like, like for me, I got, I got a lot of catching up to do. <laughs> and I like that there's this, this big list in writing. I don't know. Maybe we should uh, put it in the show notes. Some I don't know how you like censor the show notes, but maybe we'll put a doc somewhere. But uh, yeah.
0: Are there any other thoughts like before we close on this decades? Any trends you you all notice? Like like how do you feel about any projections for the rest of the decade? Uh, I guess I'll start. Um, like I think like uh, sicko cinema in a way is back in a big way, which I think is awesome, <laughs> and I think a lot of that that is to Neon's credit. Um, I really love to see movies like Titan come back. Movies like Crimes of the Future. Um, even though I'm not a huge Brandon Cronenberg fan, I think it's great that, you know, Infinity Pool's out, Possessor's out. Like, I, I don't think you could have made those movies last decade or even the decade before, and it would have, have, like, a huge curation or platform. So it's really cool seeing that type of cinema back in a big way. And uh, my one big prediction for this decade is that I think I'm going to like David Cronenberg's The Shrouds more than Crimes of the Future. We'll see if that's true, but I'm real, I really think the shrouds is going to, his next movie is going to be his most personal movie in a long time. So I'm really excited to see that. Um, Aaron, do you have any thoughts for the decade?
1: Um, I just like that there's a, like a diversity of filmmaking. I feel like the last decade, there was a lot of more serious, realistic films, you know, there's like stranger stuff. You got crimes of the future. That's just totally bizarre. Um, yeah what's the yeah I don't know just just a different feel a little more surreal but
3: definitely what do you think Nick I'm very optimist an optimist in general but just for the future I think right now we're living in a golden age of access to films even though it's harder Mm -hmm. for like you know theatrical distribution of course um, but just the fact that you can go like on Criterion Channel in the states, uh, Mubi here in Italy and in the rest of the world, and a lot of these other like streaming services that offer you a chance to watch a lot of contemporary world cinema that isn't just you know big American and British productions. I think that's great. I think it's become so easy now that it's it's an embarrassment of riches. A lot of movies that would have been super niche back in the day now are getting more of a spotlight, and I think that's great. Um and even in terms of trends, I've definitely I agree. I've seen a lot of this these weirder movies become more beloved uh by, by the mainstream. I love that we're not having uh more successful like comic book adaptations, which is you know yes.
2: like Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> they they don't say they're welcome <laughs> uh, I dropped Oof.
3: out back in like twenty seventeen and it's been t- just a long time it's coming rough. for it to crumble. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and even then, just, yeah, like, people are going to the movies, just to the cinema to watch more normal stuff, let's say. It's not just big screen entertainment. I think everything, like, tipped over because, like, oh, COVID, oh, you're at home, you get used to watching things in the scene, in, in, on, on your TV. And so people didn't go to the cinema except for your Spider-Mans or whatever. But now something shifted with, like, Top Gun, Avatar, and then the Barbenheimer phenomenon... I Definitely. see way more people going to like smaller. Like I, I remember like back in beginning of twenty twenty three, I went to watch Yo, the Donkey. Yeah,
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah the remake like,
2: of Brisson from Skolniewski. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. And it was a packed house. Like I arrived fifteen minutes early. It was like I was gonna <laughs> be there, and it was full. I was like holy shit. Same for like like himera I, I watched A Fire by by Petzold. Mm-hmm. Also a full house. Like, like people are going to hard house movies. For for a city like I used to go to the same cinema and it would be four, five other people <laughs> in the yes. screening room with like two hundred <laughs> seats, so it's it's refreshing. I think that's probably the best trend that I've noticed um, from like a movie going angle. Oh, things things are looking good. Things are looking bright. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that. Oh, go go on.
0: Oh, I was just gonna say like every like the Music Box Theater, the best Chicago theater. Every time I've gone there in the past two years, it's been, like, packed. Like, people want to see movies in the theater, and they're not just showing up for Marvel, and I think that's inspiring. Anyway, Tails, what do you think?
2: Um, yeah, uh, so I think that, like, people more so than ever want to engage with repertory cinema, and I think those independent theaters are going to do better than they have in decades. Um every time i've been to any independent cinema in the city i live in it has been sold out i manage or i'm on management at a uh chain theater and i think that chains are quite behind the times and i hope they survive but in order to do that they are going to have to recognize uh trends that they are failing to recognize in terms of how people are attending movies now and what kinds of movies that they should really be striking distribution deals with they should be going out of the way to distribute smaller films um that do have a level of cultivated hype contracts provided you know um that aren't you know i, I feel like in in the 2010s it was it was such a wasteland for like so much film i felt like you know, you know, everything was was taken over by the MCU, and so, like, big movies were damaged by that. And then at the same time, um, smaller films and independent cinema, like, were really falling into these traps of, like, kind of wanting you to know how smart they are, well, uh, yeah. or, like, increase, like, literacy of, like, the average moviegoer and make them feel smart by having these, like, very uh, thematically simplistic films positive or, like, concepts posited has like this brilliant revelation like a24 really capitalized on this so, like
4: yeah. alex
2: garland is like the epitome of what i think of when i think <laughs> of like small budget uh tw- or you know mid-budget uh 2010s film Where the there's like you know i think ex machina is great but like at the same time it is like true dumb guy shit out there and on uh, honestly i feel like that is the case with a lot of the big name directors that like grew out of the 2010s and i think people are going to remember the 2010s pretty negatively overall as time goes on um and while the beginning of the 2020s has very much been you know a lot of just like Streaming service over uh, overflow and just like very stupid movies and like old people movies and stuff. I think there are definitely like seeds that can grow into like an even bigger like art house premise and the main uh uh, uh uh not not premise uh a presence um in like uh the average moviegoer. They may be engaging with more challenging films more naturally in 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 the coming years and it's also like you know um. Movies in general obviously struggling in a lot of ways, but um, seeing like some blockbusters in the past couple years that are not just um, variants of an MCU film um, or, you know, some high concept thing um, is just like really reassuring. And we're not going to get to like the spec script boom of the 90s or anything like that, but I'm feeling much more positive now than it was like even a year ago about this coming decade of film
0: yeah I, I completely agree with everything you said I'm I'm just uh, I'm just glad that the MCU is dying because it's just um, <laughs> it's just getting to so the many point. resources so many resources but it's uh, I think it's just turning into like this self-defeating enterprise because they're making movies the, the MCU is making movies at this point where, where it's like okay, in order to know what's going on in this movie, you need to have watched, like, five Disney Plus shows and, like, 30 movies, and then you're caught up, and you know... And it's like you're
2: caught up for a children's story, like a, a very low <laughs> yeah. complexity, but, like, high demand entry.
3: You don't need to do thing. homeworks for that.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I I think it's... I think the streaming wars and, like, the... Uh, like, that whole, like obsession with content is starting to backfire and i think people just want to watch a movie now they just want to go to the cinema watch a movie for two hours that is a complete story and then go home talk about how much they liked or disliked that movie i think people are burnt out on content obsession and i think that also kind of applies to prestige television too i i think people still watch you know like succession and the bear because like they're great but i think Mm -hmm. I think when people see like a new prestige show like the new sexy beast show or something and it's right. like a, a, a 10 episode television show it's like why can't this just be a 2 hour movie? Why do I have to watch 10 episodes and have it like artificially extended for like 10 episodes? It's like I think people are burning
2: out on it. I agree. I agree. Hmm.
0: Well, I now I now I think that was a pod. What do you all think? Cool. <laughs> I think so. I think that was that a was pod. That was great. Yeah that, yeah. Good. Done. <laughs> yeah that was a that was a great conversation everyone i'm so happy like uh nick and tails that you both showed up and it's always great to podcast with you and i hope uh listeners have a whole bunch of movies to watch if they haven't seen them and uh I, yeah i think that's the pod
1: cool yeah yeah thank you everyone for showing up and uh yeah i got a lot of movies to watch i, I think uh i think the listeners are going to be excited
3: um nick where can people find you they can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at NickyGran97, and you can also watch my short films on YouTube and Vivo at EnjoyTheMovies. And, uh, Tails, where can people find
2: you? Um, I'm mostly offline now. I technically have a Twitter account that's Tales of <laughs> Tales, which I'll write in the show notes how that's spelled because it's terrible verbal SEO. Um, but mostly I just hang out in, um, uh, Jacob Geller Patreon Discord and running that. So if you want to say hello, drop by.
0: Awesome, and you can find me at Nuanced Film Takes or at Bad Film Takes One, but it's called Nuanced Film Takes on Twitter or X, whatever. And uh, Aaron, where can people find you? At Media by Aaron?
1: I I am like... I'm ready to get off Twitter, man. Everything I see on Twitter <laughs> Truly. makes me feel literally worse about being alive. Like, I, it, <laughs> this is a completely different conversation. But uh, jump <laughs> in the Discord. Uh, link in the Discord or in the uh, show
2: notes. Yeah, uh, don't follow me on Twitter. I I, I, I don't want to be there. I don't don't do that for me either. I haven't <laughs> yeah. looked at it in three months, and my life's been so much better for it. If we can get uh, you to delete your Twitter, yeah, I think we, we we've I, done something. I am good. this close to jumping <laughs> off the
1: edge. Yeah. <laughs> fuck fuck twitter but uh truly I'm feeling the
2: push i'm god feeling annoying. the push to
1: <laughs>
0: take a break oh my god oh my god I, I, i'm sadly addicted tangent. but i try. i should uh, be less what? addicted <laughs> it's the, you and god. half the world so don't feel like that but um <laughs> all right
1: that was awesome madden we love you of course and uh we'll uh we'll be back with more later thank you everyone and adios